Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm James Newbold, Autosports Plus Editor, and today I'm joined by our resident sports car expert, Gary Watkins, to discuss this weekend's 89th running of the Le Mans 24 Hours. First held in 1923, Le Mans is the world's oldest and most famous endurance race, a part of Motorsports Triple Crown, and we'll see 62 cars from four different classes attempt to complete the most laps around the Circuit de la Sarte over 24 hours. The winners get a flash Rolex, a champagne shower and a place in the history books. For some, just making the finish is an achievement in itself. Now Gary, you've been on the Le Mans beat for Autosport since before I was born and I have a copy of the 1994 magazine report on my desk as proof of that. What is it about this event that keeps you going back year on year? I I think there's a magic to it like... Uh, no other race I've ever been to. I've never been to the Indy 500, so uh, I, I could imagine that that's similar. But it's just got um, a vibe, a magic, an atmosphere that is that is unique. Yeah, it's a heady atmosphere. In as the race, as you build up, sort of from lunchtime on um, on Saturday through to the start of the race with the sort of the whole grid procedure the sort of crowd milling in the grandstands and in the terraces in front of the grandstands it builds like a crescendo i sometimes lament the fact that the race starts so late this year we're at uh, back to the traditional four o'clock although for many years it seemed to have settled on three o'clock i i sort of always think oh you know i wish i just wanted to start but it is actually that sort of delay that is is quite key to the atmosphere i think it's just that it's that building building that sense of anticipation um so i shouldn't really shouldn't really criticize the race starting so late because i think that 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 is just part of it really it's almost like a football cup final isn't it because you you get that that sense of nerves and anticipation and i don't think i normally get nervous before races and it's completely irrational because i'm not in the race <laughs> but i i do for some reason the the nerves and the the anticipation built it, you know it affects you know us covering it as well yeah i i get a sort of um a bit of a you know a sickly feeling in the pit of, pit of my stomach and and that's just i think that's a bit it's, it's nerves excitement uh i think you'd probably a psychologist would probably have to explain what it is i don't i'm not entirely sure but it's that building sense of anticipation uh that is it's quite addictive <laughs> it's not always you don't always i don't always feel absolutely great as the race approaches i just feel slightly sick actually i mean just going back to the appeal of this race 
you know, the circuit is part of that appeal because it is it's a, it's a throwback, isn't it? It's eight eight point four seven miles long. Uh, a good proportion of it is still public roads. We have the Molsan Strait. Okay, it's cut into uh, thirds now with the the two chicanes, but you know it's a phenomenal circuit. A- amazingly high speed. Uh, let's not forget that uh, I think Kobayashi's uh, pole lap was over two hundred and fifty kilometers. It was hundred. It was one hundred and fifty six point five one miles an hour. Exactly. Yeah. So, which, which in my book is very, very fast. So, uh, so yeah, and and that's one of one of the one of the appeals. Uh, unfortunately for me, this year because of uh, the times we live in, I can't go out on circuit and watch the cars, and of course. The other thing is going back to the to the, the whole atmosphere here. We have a, a limited crowd. They've limited the uh, capacity to fifty thousand people uh, for 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 Saturday and Sunday. I know tickets are still available, which which uh, means they haven't reached that fifty. But I think I think it's going to be a very local crowd. Uh, so we can sort of uh, maybe maybe people are buying their tickets late but i when the limit was set at 50,000 i i didn't imagine for one moment that they wouldn't get the 50,000 uh i i certainly hope that they do and i think i suspect there'll be a, a late a late rush from sort of locals unfortunately you know there won't be the 50,000 is actually the number of british fans who sort of traditionally come to this race but i do know of a few people who are, who are coming um, but obviously, the, there are quite a few hoops and hurd- hoops to jump through and hurdles to clear uh, for people coming from from the UK. So unfortunately, it will be a, a very much diminished British crowd. I mean, it is a shame that the that the crowd is still diminished. But I suppose at some level, it is a, an improvement on on last year, which was obviously held behind closed doors. Um, we've also had the test day, which was last weekend. We'll go on to talk about that a little bit later, which was cancelled last year. And the on-track schedule is a little bit more normal with running across the Wednesday and Thursday before the traditional Friday rest. I put rest in my notes, but I mean it ironically because for us, it's not really a rest. You almost just want the race to get started on Friday. Um, while we're not in the traditional June slot, obviously we've moved forward from September to August, so we're inching closer to a, a more normal event. Did it feel during the test day weekend like things were more normal than last year, having the, for example, the Corvette racing team back with their traditional air horn to sound the uh, to sound the alarm for lunchtime? And definitely felt like we were moving back towards normality. Uh, a test day, uh, you know. Pr- pretty much to the normal format with the exception that it's just a week ahead of the race whereas over the last well we're talking more than a dozen years it's been two weeks uh before the race um before that of course it it was traditionally right at the end of april i think sometimes it it nibbled in into may yeah pre-qualifying in those days well some not always it was it (sighs) Of course, the tr- traditionally the test day, if you go back to the 60s, was never pre-qualifying. It became pre-qualifying. There were a couple of test days in the 1980s. It, it was sort of, to say it was revived wasn't quite right because it, it sort of never took hold. But there were a couple of years uh, it was run in the 80s. Came back in 93 as a test day. And then as sort of during the GT era, as uh, the ACO uh, got sort of overwhelmed with entries. They sort of introduced the pre-qualifying format, but it wasn't only pre-qualifying because not everyone had to pre-qualify. So for me, it was that it was a test day and pre-qualifying, and then obviously pre-qualifying stopped, um, and it just became the test day. The test day is 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 an important part uh, of the build up, you know, f- especially for the rookies to get experience of the track, and they have to do their ten laps uh, during during the test day. So we we quite you quite often see the rookies out very early, getting their um, ten laps in the bag, uh, which is not always easy for them because they're out on a dirty track, uh, a very green track without much rubber down. Uh, and, think, and don't forget, you know, as, as I mentioned before, much of the circuit is public road. So there were trucks, cars, 
two CVs, whatever, um, which are cars, of course, uh, running around on the um, on the uh, on the track on parts of the track only hours before they were out. It felt normal that we had a test day, no crowd for the test day, unfortunately. So so in that sense, it was not quite normal. But uh, yeah, we're, 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 we're getting there. And obviously that my hope and I'm sure the hope of tens of thousands of British sports car fans is that uh, we'll be back fully to normal next year. They'll be in their campsites, drinking beer, eating frites. Um, and doing all the things they love doing on the middle week of June. Being kept awake in the middle of the night by Danish sports car racing fans and their techno music. (laughs) Um, It's the fourth round of the 2021 World Endurance Championship in its new era, of course, this year with the hypercars now forming the top class in place of LMP1. For now, there are just three manufacturers represented in the hypercar class. Toyota, joined by American supercar manufacturer Glickenhaus, and Alpine, which has a grandfathered LMP1 that raced last year as the Rebellion. More are on the way, of course. Peugeot is coming with a Le Mans hypercar next year. Ferrari in 2023 for the 100th anniversary of the first Le Mans 24 hours, while a new class, LMDH, based on LMP2 chassis with a spec hybrid system, bespoke powertrains and bodywork designs, has attracted Audi, Porsche, Acura and BMW for 2023, while Lamborghini is among those that are expected to enter. Back in the here and now though, Toyota is unbeaten so far across the three opening rounds at Spa, Portimao and Monza. I guess the big question here, Gary, is can they continue that unbeaten run and win a fourth Le Mans in a row? Uh, They're favourites because they are a a big spending manufacturer that's been at Le Mans since 2012 in their current iteration. They've won the uh, first three rounds of the WEC. Uh, They've proved the reliability of the car to a certain extent. They're up against... um, a manufacturer um, with a sort of an infrastructure, a grouping of partners who are, who are all very new to uh, top flight endurance racing. Uh, and then there's Alpine with the, the grandfathered LMP1 car, which for various reasons will, will not be quite as competitive as the... Um, as the LMH cars from Toyota and Glickenhaus. Part of that is by design. Um, part of that is by historical accident, which perhaps I'll uh, I'll go into uh, a little bit later. But I think, you know, Toyota, I said, I have asked um, Pascal Vassalon, uh, technical director of uh, Toyota Gazoo Racing Europe, are you, uh, are you favourites? He goes, well, we have to accept that, you know. And they do, because for, for the reasons I've said, you know, that they, they are the big spending manufacturer. They are the uh, they are incumbent in the series and they have won the first three races. So so, yes, they're favourites. But no, don't bet the farm on it. A, because it's Le Mans. B, because the cars are new. And C, the LMH um, category is designed to sort of lower the bar and level the playing field so Glickenhaus undoubtedly have a chance you know what kind of chance well I guess it's probably too early to say but you know we've seen at the uh, test day they were quickest they uh, a late lap from Olivier Pla just edged out uh, the quickest Toyota uh, time so you know we have we have to say they're in the mix how much, though, can we read into the test day times? Because, of course, one lap is is great to, to shout about. You know, pole position is always nice to tell the marketing bods. But as we all know, it's it's how the cars perform through the night when the temperatures drop. How many triple stints can they do? And, of course, the big R word, reliability. Um, so how much can we read into you know this early showing from Glickenhaus, bearing in mind that it's only going to be the, the car's third race? You know, I don't. We shouldn't read too much into it, and they're not getting too excited about it because, as you say, it's it's just one lap. But I think it it proves that this car is not some kind of joke, and uh, that's that's that was one of their sort of messages after the Monza round, where you know they br- ever so briefly led the race. They were in the mix. They 
they didn't disgrace themselves. I mean, far from disgracing themselves. And I think this just, I think just what they did at the test just sort of proves that they're serious uh, and proves that we shouldn't be discounting them. That's, that's the significance for me. Your feature in the Le Mans preview supplement on Glickenhouse delves a lot into the the, the background of the team, the, the the wealth of experience from the technical partners that, that they've amassed in this project. Tell us a little bit about Glickenhouse because there may be people that, that haven't <laughs> that that unlike you and me aren't super keen followers of the Nurburgring 24 Hours, which is where um, Clickenhaus has predominantly applied its trade in in recent years, and now applying that to the biggest stage of them all in sports car racing. Well, Jim Glickenhaus is a former uh, film director. He he will definitely tell you he's retired, and he has been retired for some years. Probably his biggest film is called The Exterminator. Uh, I can't give you any details of it because I've never seen it. Uh, I'd say it's it's probably best described as a cult classic, which is a sort of catch-all phrase people use to describe films that they don't really know about. So I'll I'll, I'll stick with that. Uh, he's a massive car nut. He has a, a very nice collection of cars that he keeps uh, in Sleepy Hollow, New York State. And I just like saying Sleepy Hollow because that is a film I have seen. I didn't actually realise that it's a real place. I just thought it was the name of a, a film. So um, uh, so that's so that's all my uh, film references out of the way. He loves cars. He, um, he got Pininfarina to develop... Uh, a car for him based on Ferrari Enzo, which is a reimagination of his um, P34 racer from the 60s that uh, I think won, I think his car won the Daytona 24 hours. Uh, From there, it was kind of thing, it was a sort of, "Mm, what do we do next? Well, race it. So they built a racing version of the car, not with the Enzo underneath, but with, uh, it was actually a, a Ferrari 430 underneath. They raced that at the Nürburgring because they have an experimental class. So it was a sort of a way in for him. He then built a hybrid version of that car. He then built his his first own, the first true Glickenhaus, which was actually called a, um, an SCG, which stands for Scuderia Cameron Glickenhaus, which is the name of his company and Cameron is his wife's maiden name which she always uses because as Jim says Glickenhouse is a bit of a mou- mouthful that's his wife Meg uh, that led into another car the uh, 04 which came along a couple of years ago that is going to be their first proper road car sort of volume you know a car made in decent uh, volumes then we had around that time uh, we had the sort of move towards Le Mans hypercar, and that opened opened the door to uh, to a sort of essentially you might call a privateer, an independent, a garagiste, whatever whatever you want to call him. That opened the door because, as I've said, you know the new rules are aimed to lower the bar of entry and level the playing field. Um, if we still had LMP1, there would be no Glickenhaus because the the costs would just be uh, just too great and you would never be able to compete with the manufacturers. And that's the beauty of LMH is that it's designed to allow a smaller team to come along, spend less, but still be competitive. Back on the second racing Glickenhaus, the... Uh, the hybrid car he linked up with a very young company called uh, Podium Advanced Technologies uh, who ha- who were brought in for their hybrid experience he's, he's stayed with them uh, ever since and they, they developed the 003 the 004 and now they've de- developed the 007 uh, LMH which is the car racing this coming weekend at Le Mans he stayed loyal to um, to Podium they've developed the car they've brought in of course they've brought in uh, various partners they've brought in Yurst Racing to help run the car uh, the engine is also done by someone who we probably don't really know much about but are actually very successful in motorsport uh, Pe- Pipo Motor from uh, 
from not far from Lyon in France have done this V8 engine. Uh, if you haven't heard of them, well, that's because they don't get a lot of um, uh, publicity for the success they've had, mostly in sort of off-road disciplines in in the World Rally Championship, in Rallycross with Peugeot uh, uh, and Ford amongst amongst the manufacturers they've worked with. So it's it's sort of quite a... I mean, obviously, we we see Yerst there as an established Le Mans name, but the other the other two partners uh, perhaps don't have that sort of uh, Le Mans heritage. But uh, so far, so good. It looks like they've sort of meshed together to create um, a, a good package. A good package it may be, but I suppose if if Glickenhaus does win, it would be classed as one of the the great shocks up there with. Perhaps a you know a Jean Rondo, for example, um, victory. How how would you kind of character? I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but but how big a a shock to the establishment would it be if Toyota were, were beaten here? It's a long shot. I think it has to be a long shot uh, because they've got a chance, but they're not favourites, uh, and we haven't really discussed Alpine much. But you know, if 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 I was a betting man, I would probably make them second favourites, and we can discuss that a bit, a bit more uh, in a minute. I suppose it would be a shock. Perhaps it would be a shock more to the outside world than to to people who sort of understand the um, the way the rules have been written. Uh, and and we shouldn't also forget that Glickenhaus are not coming here in their fir- their first time against four five six manufacturers they're only coming against if you like one and a half um so it's it's slightly different isn't it if they were to win i don't think it would be a complete and utter shock to the aficionados to those in the know uh perhaps to the outside world it would be a shock i mean if you go back to 1995 the second le mans i covered for all sport and McLaren won. Well, of course, McLaren is a very established name, but that was a complete and utter shock. You know, it was a road car and very much a road car. Okay, it was based on this. Well, we didn't use the term hypercar then, but it was it was based on you know one of the most um, for its time one of the most amazing uh, road going sports cars. But it very much was a a road car, sort of hastily developed for 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 the for the racetrack uh, and it and it won partly because of the the uh, terrible weather that year you know i think if it had been dry it would just not it it would not have won you know that's 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 the fact so that was a complete shock i would actually say rondo uh, there's almost a similarity with this year if you look at the year rondo won at, at le mans in 1980 it was a it was a year of limited opposition you know, there was no factory Porsche. He bought, he beat, just beat the uh, Reinhold Yerst's car that was called the Porsche 90880, but was actually a 936 uh, in all but name. Uh, and that was, you know, one of the only serious prototypes up against Rondo. So you can't even, you know, was that such a shock? We shouldn't forget that Rondo had been in the mix in 79, had already been, you know, already had a, a series of top six results. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say, call that a shock either. For me, the big shock was McLaren in, in 95. You've made reference to Alpine perhaps not being, going into this event with with the same expectation as perhaps Toyota and, and Glickenhaus, which, given that it has the most proven car as a grandfathered LMP1, is uh, is interesting because if it does turn into a, a reliability race, you'd expect that the Alpine might be able to go um, the distance there. Give us a little bit of background as to why Alpine are going into this, perhaps with, with one hand tied behind its back a little. Well, the sort of I guess the the philosophical starting point of grandfathering uh, a car, which which is I'm not really sure of the origins of that term, but I'm pretty sure it comes from American sports car racing. In footballing terms, half a yard of pace behind the front runners. Do you know what I mean? So not, you know, in the in the ballpark, but at, at the back of the ballpark. It's, you know, the idea isn't that they should be bang on the pace. There's another problem uh, for um, Alpine 
going into this race, and that's that they are handicapped by their uh, fuel tank size, the which is 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 not nothing to do with the regulations, but it's more to do with the origins of the car, the 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 car that is now called the Alpine Gibson A480, started life as the Rebellion R13, hastily developed for the 2018-19 stroke super season. Uh, and it was developed out of the Orica LMP2 uh, design. And that means it's got LMP2 fuel capacity, which is around about 75 litres. That's what I'm told the capacity of uh, of of the of the tank in the car is. And, you know, you can't change the... F- the, the monocoque has a you know a certain size and you can't you know it's not like the olden days when you can bolt on tanks here and there squeeze them in wherever you know it is it is what it is a bar 2005 style hidden fuel tank yeah. <laughs> the lmh rules are framed to give the cars for the cars to do 12 laps of le mans uh and 75 liters is not uh, not enough to uh, get that car to 12 laps so it seems i mean if we look at uh, the races so far uh, they've been several short the, the alpine has been several short of the toyota and uh, the glickenhaus when it arrived at portimao so i don't i don't see that we're going to see that car going more more than 11 laps which is what the rebellion did in in the past uh, so that means it's going to make pit stops you know with with safety cars and slow zones and things like that you know that can be good because you sort of make up for those extra stops but on the other hand if you're stopping more regularly that gives you less uh strategic flexibility uh so that's that's you know for me they're going into the race with sort of one hand tied behind their back there's there's been a bit of a bop change uh in the run-up to the race um, which has actually been a reduction of the energy afforded to the Alpine. Now, this this is this, it's very hard to explain this, but I'm going to have a go anyway. There's no, there isn't a capacity limit in uh, in LMH. The fuel is not regulated by you have you can have X number X X liters of fuel. There's a an energy. Uh, allocation given in megajoules which for the case of the toyota which is a hybrid includes its electrical energy the amount of energy that the um, alpine had in the early races this year it couldn't actually use all that energy it's a housekeeping thing that has reduced the amount of energy allocated to the alpine to bring it in line with the energy it's using so what you might think well in the lmh rules the length of the pit stop you make or the length of the time that the refueling hose is on the car is actually in proportion to the percentage of energy the percentage of the energy in your allocation that you use so basically this means we're going to see it's a way of leveling up the pit stop times of all three manufacturers uh, I hope you understood that, and it is confusing, and it is, but it's it's it's, it's as I say, it's a very much a, a housekeeping thing rather than, you know, it's not designed. Well, my interpretation and everyone else's interpretation is that it's not designed to uh, cut a lap off the uh, Alpine stint length, and it's not. Uh, yeah, it's 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 nothing to do with making sure they're they're that still that half a yard behind the Toyota and the Glickenhaus. This is effectively one of the problems with sports car racing, isn't it? That that people on the outside look at it as a very needlessly complicated um, endeavour, which in some respects it is, but in some respects it isn't. I mean, the the the, the nature of Le Mans, as I see it, is uh, a very unglamorous, very tough race of survival of not making mistakes of keeping the car on the track and kind of seeing how things play out and we hear time and again people say well the reliability of these cars now is such that um, the race is now a a 24-hour sprint but 
that may be the case but when drivers start to get tired and mistakes creep in and people try and, and pull a, a low percentage maneuver trying to put a lap on a GT car um, because they're worried about losing a second or two um, the race can suddenly turn out to be very different so sometimes these these small details become effectively moot sometimes they become really significant points and there's no way of knowing going into the race just how significant these will actually be like test cricket it's slightly complicated and you you get um you get the aficionados who understand all the intricacies and then you get the more casual fan who are there for for the moments it gets exciting and i think test cricket gets exciting um Yes, there's always moments of excitement and it's a bit, I think it's a bit like Le Mans. There are, there are lulls in the action where it's maybe not, it's, you're thinking, what's happening here? This is getting a bit boring, but then it will, it will come to some kind of crescendo at some point. I mean, we've been talking so far about the hypercar field that is made up of five cars that we think are feasibly going to go for the outright win and, and hopefully in years to come, the, the outright battle will be, uh, made up of a, a much deeper field. Looking a little bit further down the, the classes though at Le Mans, um, many of the drivers that we'll be seeing in hypercars in the coming years are looking to prove their worth in LMP2, the secondary prototype category which has the biggest class size in the race at 25 entries. Um, for those of you who aren't perhaps familiar with LMP2, it's made up of four approved chassis manufacturers um, that provide machines powered by the sonorous Gibson V8. Since the rules were introduced in 2017, Orica has emerged as the dominant package and will supply all but one team at this year's race with um, only one Ligier in the field. Um, the cars have been slowed for this year to maintain the lap time deficit to the top class, given, as Gary mentioned earlier, the, the current hypercars are slower than uh, last year's LMP1 machines. But it's always spectacular to, to watch them buzz around. Um, here the, the difference is, is ten, tended to be made up by the lowest graded driver um, in, in the three driver roster because all crews must have either a silver graded driver which tends to be either um, an up and coming driver in their 20s um, or maybe someone a little older who doesn't have the success maybe of, of a Formula 1 um, background on their CV or a world championship or the like or a bronze driver who is uh, a gentleman driver who has their um, main occupation being something outside racing um, the, the difference in the in the best between the best drivers in the class tends to be fairly small um, and we've got a new pro-am subclass this year for crews with a bronze driver um, as part of the roster that has attracted decent interest it does effectively reduce though the number of cars that can go for the class win to uh, the 15 cars that aren't in the uh, pro-am class now gary there are 11 ex-formula one drivers in the lmp2 field this year including father and son duo kevin and jan magnuson who share high class racing orica this year in lmp2 you spoke to all 11 of them for for our le mans special preview who out of those 11 to you stands the best chance there's a sort of super team isn't there well you there are sort of there's a super team that has emerged for le mans um united autosports last year's winners uh has put together uh, a one-off entry for le mans because it actually it, it gained multiple what we call guaranteed or automatic entries for the race for its successes last year uh, in the WEC last year in the LMS uh, I could go on I I, I, I think I, I think it had five automatic entries in theory uh, but anyway it's here with three cars it's got it's got its regular WEC car it's got a car made up of drivers from its two ELMS cars and then it's got this supercar which has Paul DeResta who was part of the winning lineup here last year um he, um, you talked about the driver grading uh, system. He he sort of was sort of left out of a drive because of that. Because one one of his teammates last year, Phil Hansen, was upgraded from silver to gold for this year. Therefore, they had to find a silver, and effectively, um, and that and that sort of pushed, unfortunately, pushed Paul. Paul out so they brought Fabio Shearer in to drive with Phil Hansen and his long-term teammate uh, Felipe Albuquerque 
Yeah, and then Alex Lynn. Um, of course, we know Alex Lynn. Well, well I, I barely need to introduce him, but he was part of the winning crew at Le Mans last year in GTE Pro with Aston Martin. Sadly, not in uh, GTE, uh, GTE Pro anymore. Aston, they they pulled out. Uh, so uh, Alex has come in uh, to that to that car. And then the third driver is someone who is sort of on the comeback trail, if you like. He, he came back after a good few years out of racing. Uh, that's Wayne Boyd uh, from Northern Ireland. He raced in uh, British Formula 3, up to British Formula 3, back when he was a youth, had a few years out, was brought back because he was a silver driver. He's uh, had success with... Uh, with United in the ELMS, in the LMP3 division, the secondary division. He's started racing in P2 this year with their with uh, a short campaign in IMSA that United are doing in, in the longer races. Uh, he also drove, he also came in when uh, Shearer failed a COVID test at uh, Portimao and made his wet debut there. Uh, so, so Wayne Boyd is a phenomenal silver so i think you've got these two superstars the rest of the ex grand prix driver reigning class champion alex lynn who we shouldn't forget is a sebring 12 hours uh winner with wayne taylor racing a few years back and then we have wayne boyd as a silver so that is the uh that's for me that's an amazing team the the only thing you could uh the only mark against them is that then they haven't been racing all year as a trio. Uh, I think that's, that's, you know, perhaps, perhaps a negative. Well, it is a negative. Whether it will have an effect, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. As you say, Gary, the, the super team from United is going to be very tough to beat. And that's even before, um, you know, we, we discussed the merits of the Albuquerque Hansen Shearer car, which um, has won two of the three races in, in WEC so far this year. Um, United is a, a supremely strong team, obviously uh, run by Richard Dean, co-owned by Zach Brown of McLaren Formula One CEO fame. Um, we talked about drivers putting themselves in the shop window, and I suppose to a degree the same applies with teams. Now, United has been plying its trade in LMP2 for many years, and, and as you say, has been gaining automatic entries left, right and centre for, for accumulating numerous championships. Can you see that team... Um, having a role in hypercar before too long? Well, they make their aspirations uh, clear. You know, that's where they want to be. Um, and I think they're, they're probably joined by uh, half the LMP2 grid. You know, why a WRT, a team that have worked with Audi in the GT3 arena, won just about everything worth winning, including the Spa 24 hours and the Nürburgring 24 hours. Why, are they, why do they have two Oricas on the grid um, this year at Le Mans? Well, partly because Vincent Voss loves Le Mans. Vincent, they're uh, the team... Well, one of the team owners and is sort of very much the tea, the front man of the team. A, he loves Le Mans, but he's got his eye on LMDH. And we know Audi are coming in 2023. You know, there's speculation that WRT could be a work, could be the works team uh, when they arrive. Um, who knows I, whether that decision has been made or not? I don't, I don't know. But, you know, they have a long term relationship with Audi, have run factory cars, uh, not just at Spa and Nürburgring, but uh, in other races too. They've, they've, uh, yeah. So they've worked with them in the Intercontinental uh, GT Challenge, uh, amongst other things. So, so yeah, I think they're, you know, Jota, you know, a British team who have a phenomenal record at Le Mans. Uh, clearly, they have the same aspiration. And, and let's not forget that LMDH is very much designed for customers to be able to race against uh, the factories. Both Porsche and Audi have committed that there will be customer cars racing from day one of the programme, which, which means... The opening round of IMSA in 2023, the Daytona 24 Hours, that they will have customer cars and factory cars on the grid uh, from from that race. So it's very much sort of going back to the sort of Porsche 956, 962 days, where uh, you could you could go and buy almost the same car as well. 
back in those days, you could buy almost the same car as the factory was racing. You were probably one one year of development behind. But with LMDH, you are buying the car that uh, the factory is racing. So if someone buys a Porsche, they have the same equipment as Penske, the factory team in both uh, the World Endurance Championship and uh, and IMSA. So in two years' time, we'll see some of the teams in LMP2 with factory deals and we'll see some of them running LMDH customer cars. And it'll be fascinating to see who does make that step up and, and who will be left on the on the, on the the shelf, so to speak, re- remaining to ply their trade um, for, for mere class wins as opposed to, to the outright honours. Just to run down the remaining... Um, ex-Formula 1 drivers in the field to watch out for. Um, of course, there's Juan Pablo Montoya, who's racing the Dragon Speed car. Felipe Nazza, who's racing uh, the Rizzi Competizione um, LMP2 Orica. That team, of course, typically known as a as a Ferrari GTE operation. The last, uh, incidentally, the last privateer team to have a car on the podium in, in GTE Pro back in 2016. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, Anthony Davidson, who is, of course, part of the, the Jota Sport lineup, along with Stuffel Van Dorn, uh, Paul DeResta, we've mentioned, Will Stevens, formerly of Manor, and Roberto Mary, of course, another one who is briefly part of the Manor operation in Formula One. Robert Kubitzer, I think people may have heard of him, and Guido Vandergaard, also part of the uh, LMP2 Pro Am roster in the um, car that is. I, I always love trotting this out uh, every year on Autosport Live that Fritz Van Eerd is uh, the, the the gentleman driver in in that car, the the jumbo supermarket owner for Racing Team Netherland, is a is a big fan of Minardi's and has a big collection of of, of cars that that Giancarlo Minardi's underdog team produced, and the livery of that car is based on his favourite one from the early nineties, and I always forget whether it's the ninety one or the ninety two car that he um, took inspiration from. But uh, always a nice one to trot out during a, a little lull <laughs> during the action and on, on our Autosport Live channels. Now, of course, we've, we've also got uh, the GTE classes um, to talk about. The GTE Pro field is a little slimmer than in years gone by. Uh, in 2019, we had 17 entries, um, but for the past two years, we, we've only got eight. Um, boosted this year by the return of, of Corvette Racing after missing last year due to the pandemic. But as Gary mentioned earlier, Aston Martin has unfortunately departed for uh, it, to, to prioritise Formula One. Um, we've got two privateer Porsches um, this year, um, and it was Porsches that dominated the, the test day, filling out the top three spaces um, with Kevin Estra 0.03 seconds up on Jean-Maria Bruni, his teammate in the factory cars. Um, Earl Bamber setting the third quickest time um, which was the fastest time from the afternoon session in the Proton competition run WeatherTech racing Porsche. Um, Interestingly Gary, the, 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 the factory Porsches were among only five cars in the whole field who set their best times in the morning. Um, which suggests that there may have been more to come in the afternoon had they wanted to show their hand. Um, they also topped the speed traps as well. Um, so how do we rate Porsche's prospects after a, a very difficult first year for for their car, um, which was Newton Mans last year? It basically ran at the back the whole time, um, really one to forget for Porsche, um, but has come out of the traps firing on all cylinders this time. Um, well, I think, yeah, I think they, if I, I'm sure there was a discussion in the uh, Porsche pit or in the, in the, wherever they do their strategy that they probably felt they'd gone plenty fast enough with those times uh, in the morning. Uh, certainly the track was at its quickest uh, late in the day. You know, when we saw Pla doing his time just before the end, it was the the test went on to seven o'clock this year. So temperatures had been very hot in the afternoon. Um, so so which partly mitigated with the track sort of rubbering in and getting cleaner. Uh, but then you know, in that final hour or so, that was when the the track would have been at its quickest. And I'm sure. Uh, Porsche probably thought, oh no, we, do, we don't need to run here. I mean, you know, they might have gone into the day with a set schedule and 
they were always doing long runs at that at that time you know we've got we've got no no way way of knowing that but i think it, it proves that uh yeah porsche's looking good and looking quick on the straight which is which is important i think uh for that car which hasn't always looked uh quick on the straight that's this the second generation of the mid-engined uh rsr which which came on stream um in last season's uh, WEC, which of course actually started in 2019. Um, so yeah, I'm. It's difficult to, you know, Porsche had had a, an amazing start to the season. Well, they've had two two wins and one one wobble at uh, at Portimao uh, for the second race. You know, I'm putting my money on Porsche. Uh, they're they're sort of overdue a win here i think in gte pro i think you know i think ferrari going to be right with them and i think corvette are going to be right with them we we haven't really seen corvette it's the first time for the uh for the mid-engine c8 here because they because of covid last year they opted not to come which was partly due to the sort of reorganization of the imsa schedule partly because you know international travel was difficult so there were multiple reasons why they had to break their unbroken why corvette racing had to break its unbroken sequence of le mans starts dating back to 2000 but they're here now uh i'm convinced they will be a force we haven't seen it yet in uh we didn't see it in the test day but then you know that car is new to this track um new to the WEC it's only done a handful it's done two races Spa this year uh Austin last year uh clearly I I, I just don't think we're going to go into we're going to see a race where the Corvette isn't competitive I think that car has been designed to to make up for some of the deficiencies that the um the previous car the front engine c7r had at le mans uh i would be very surprised if it's not if it's not right there i spoke to alexander sims for our autosport special preview issue um and he said that when he first tried the car um, obviously having moved over from, from BMW where he'd been for many years he was surprised that there were no real weak points when he, he first tested it at Sebring um, so he's very optimistic that he can be um, that, that Corvette can be right on the pace he of course was, was one of several drivers who had to miss the test because of the final round of the Formula E Championship which um, took place inconsiderately I must say on the same weekend um, so the best time that was put on the board by Corvette was uh, by the 64 crew that Sims will, will join, um, which is Nick Tandy and Tommy Milner, um, which was half a second off the pace. Before we wrap up, Gary, we should mention the GTE Am field, which has 23 cars, which is a, a phenomenal effort to put together, and I think will be one of the most interesting races um, with all the strategic divergences as each of the crews. Um, has a different strategy for how they'll use their bronze whether they decide to start their bronze and, and get some of the time out of the way early or put their um, pro drivers in first and, and try and get a, a, a break and if there's a an incident that involves a safety car um, try and get themselves in the safety car train um, above the next one because Le Mans being such a long circuit whenever there's a, an incident you, you get three safety cars which in the past has often proven fatal to, to teams um, hopes of victory when they get stuck behind a different safety car than, than, the, than the class leader and they can't then make that deficit up for the rest of the race. Um, the class was topped on the test day by uh, another familiar name uh, Harry Tinknell who won the GTE Pro class along with Alex Lynn and Maxime Martin at Le Mans last year for Aston Martin. Um, his first time in a Porsche that was a, a last minute deal that um, put him in the Proton competition number 99 entry um, as part of an engineering tie-up that that team has got with Multimatic um, for whom Tinknell drives in the IMSA series with Mazda. It was very close at the top of the times. We had um, six cars within um, two tenths, among them four British drivers, um, Jody Fannin, a former ELMS champion uh, in the JMW Ferrari, Ben Barnacote, who is in the Optimum racing Ferrari that is under the Inception Racing banner in deference to um, that car's bronze, Brendan Arib. Um, that's run in cooperation with Kessel Racing because uh, Optimum is, is primarily a GT3 team that's used to running McLaren and Aston Martin machinery. Uh, and Tom Gamble, who was sick fastest, um, two-tenths off the pace in the uh, Golf Racing 
Porsche. Now, Gary, it's uh, again a class with uh, enormous depth to it, lots of potential winners to pick out. Um, but interestingly, I thought among that contingent was the fact that Aston Martin was was not present there. So Aston Martin is present in the um, AM class, and it's not in the Pro class. Um, three manufacturers in, in the AM class, Porsche, Ferrari and Aston Martin, no Corvettes um, in the AM class unfortunately. Um, but intriguingly when you look down at the times, the fastest Aston driver was Marcos Gomez in the Pro uh, in the Pro Drive entered um, Aston Martin, which somewhat confusingly is entered as Aston Martin Racing. Um, it is it is effectively a a quasi works uh, entry by the car builder ProDrive, um, which has Nicky Team, the reigning GTE Pro champion, aboard as the as the platinum graded driver, um, with Paul Dallalana, a stalwart of the class, the bronze. I thought it was really interesting, Gary, that Gomez was the fastest uh, Aston driver, and he was only 19th. Again, one of those, as we mentioned before, that set the best time in the morning. Um, so. Does that suggest to you that, that the Aston contingent maybe have more to show as well? Oh, um, with Ben Keating, another highly rated bronze that was well down the order. Well, thanks again, Gary, for joining us today. You can, of course, follow all the action as it unfolds on autosport.com, where we'll be bringing you a live, dedicated blog following the race with text updates throughout the 24 hours. And, of course, the practice and qualifying sessions leading up to it starting on Wednesday. There will be rolling news updates and features, including pieces from our 52-page Le Mans special preview supplement written by Gary, myself and others. Thanks once again for listening. Join us next week for our Le Mans review podcast. See you then. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. However you want to make a splash this year, Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds can help every step of the way. Wool Runner Mizzles are shoes crafted with premium, supernatural, weather-repellent materials. The high-top uppers are moisture-wicking merino wool with puddle guard technology, and the supernatural rubber treads ensure all-weather traction, so you can jump into anything, rain or shine. Make a splash with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Discover your perfect pair at allbirds.com today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.